So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you've made us a church family and we lift up Chance and Shelley. We thank you for them. We just pray your blessing upon them in this time of transition. Lord, we lift up our need for a future worship pastor. We know you're going to provide. And Lord, now we focus our attention upon your word. We pray that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. You give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think deep down in our lives, we desire to be effective. And anything that we put our hands to, we want it to be fruitful. And this morning's study, we're going to hone in on the life of Samuel. And I think Samuel's life provides us an example of an effective ministry. Now, when we talk about ministry, a lot of times we just think of it in the context of a church and a church building and and a church ministry, but that's not ministry. Ministry is 24-7. Ministry is being a servant and serving the Lord right where we're at. So effective ministry is really a life that God can use. In this text, in these two chapters that we're going to cover this morning, there's three storylines. There's Saul's beginnings. There's Israel's decision. They're rejecting God as their leader and choosing to have a man lead them. And then there's Samuel's farewell. Samuel will continue on the scene, but not in a public forum. This is his last address to the children of Israel as Saul is being made the king publicly. It's the coronation of Saul. So let's begin in chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to primarily read through chapter 11, and we'll spend the bulk of our time in chapter 12. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite comes against this particular city. They're fearful, so they go out to him and say, We want to make a covenant with you, an agreement with you, and we'll serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I will put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all of Israel. Wow, that's nice. Who is this guy, the pirate of the Old Testament? Yeah, you can serve me, but I'm going to take all of your right eye. I'm going to pluck it out. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all of the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Uh, let, let us think this over for seven days. This sounds like a pretty good deal, but we'll get back to you. In essence, they're buying time to try to find somebody that will come to their aid, that will rescue them. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all of the people lifted up their voices and wept. We're in for it. We're doomed was the response of God's people. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, What troubles the people? That they weep. And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. He's concerned with the people. He's concerned with their burden. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Saul begins well. If you know his story, he doesn't end well. Very quickly, he gets off track. But in his beginnings, he's burdened for the needs of God's people. He's someone that the Holy Spirit can use, 
and he's aroused with righteous anger to take action. And we see the action that he takes in verse 7. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all of the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever doesn't go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. That's one way to get you moving, isn't it? If you don't come out and fight for Jabesh Gilead, then your oxen's going to be cut up like this oxen that you received. Oxen was your most valuable possession. It's the way you supported your family, plowed your, your fields. Very, very important. It doesn't seem that God's people are used to rallying to each other's needs. Without some kind of action to spur them on, they would have just let Jabesh Gilead get their eyes plucked out and to go into slavery. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. God uses Saul's actions. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So 330,000 respond. And they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. That's an understatement. Can you imagine the joy that they were feeling? We're not going to get our eyes plucked out. Our brothers and sisters, they're rallying to us. They're going to come to our defense. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. They came in the midst of the camp in the morning watched and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul's a changed man. When he was anointed to be king, what was he doing? He was hiding. He wasn't ready to step into that call. But now the Spirit of God is upon him, and he's taking leadership in a courageous way. God had transformed him. In verse 12, the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. A victory is a good time to deal with those who are opposed to you. There were a lot of people opposed to, to Saul. We saw that in prior chapter. So there's this idea of now we'll bring them out, and we'll go ahead and put them to death because they're against Saul. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Saul has the wisdom to not put those to death who opposed him, to let God deal with them. If Saul would have only stayed in that place of humility, of allowing God to, to fight his battles. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilead and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilead. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilead. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all of the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Saul had been anointed as king, but had not been publicly announced as king. So this is the moment after this victory that Samuel gets all of the people together and says, here's your king, the coronation of the king, Saul's beginnings. Let's go on to chapter 12. And by the way, that's the quickest that I've ever gone through a chapter, right there. Verse 1, now Samuel said to all of Israel, indeed, I've heeded your voice in all that you have said to me and had made a king over you. Samuel wants to remind them, this was your idea. 
This was not God's idea. God wanted to be your king, but you requested a king, so here he is. And now here's the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. He just owns it. You know, I'm old. I'm not even going to try to pretend to be young. I'm old. I've got gray hair. I've earned it. And look, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my childhood to this day. Effective ministry, a life that God can use, the first quality is consistency. That's what we see in the life of Samuel, consistency. His life story is amazing. He was a request to answered prayer. His mom, Hannah, couldn't have children. She was barren. She cried out before God. God answered that prayer and gave her Samuel. Samuel was then dedicated at the tabernacle to grow up in the house of prayer. His life was an answer to prayer. He grew up in the house of prayer. And as a young, young child, five, six, seven, eight, he's serving the Lord. And that's what we saw at the beginning of, of this book. And he never stopped. Now he's an old man. He's a gray-haired man, and he's saying, I'm still here, I'm still serving you, consistency. And there's something to be said about consistency. Real impact doesn't happen in brief moments, but it happens through a lifetime of faithful service. Serving the Lord's not like being a 4th of July fireworks show, where you try to muster up all of your energy, and you're like, I'm going to be on fire for God, and I'm going to have a radical summer for Christ. And then you peter out, and by Christmas time, you're drifting away from the Lord. It's much more like being a star. Stars are consistent. You look up, and you're like, there's the Big Dipper. Uh, there's the Big Dipper. There's the Big Dipper. My grandpa looked at the Big Dipper. Now my children are looking at the, the Big Dipper. Their children will look at the, the Big Dipper. It's consistency. And that's what God desires from our hearts and lives as well, something that others can count on. They know you're going to be there. They know Sunday morning you're going to be in the house of God because you love the Lord. They know that you're going to be reading the word. They know that you're going to be in prayer. They know that you're going to continue to love them and continue to serve them. And this is in all facets of life. And be a consistent worker where your boss can know you're going to show up and you're going to give an honest day's work. You're going to work hard in your heart. If you're a student, man, be consistent in what God's given to you to do as a student. Do it faithfully unto the Lord. God's called you to, to serve inside of the body of Christ, be consistent. We have a, a teacher that teaches in our children's ministry on Saturday night, and she teaches first grade, and she's been doing it for years and years and years and years, to the point where she's had both of our older girls, and they both continue to talk about her impact of, upon, upon their life. That's an amazing consistency that was shown. I appreciate consistency. My mother-in-law, my wife's mom, is a woman of consistency. In September, Amber and I will be married for 14 years, and for 14 years, my mother-in-law calls me every Saturday at 7.30 in the morning. Our kids are up early. I'm up early. She knows that I'm going to be up, and it's a good time for us to connect and talk, and we talk for, for a few minutes. It's to the point where yesterday morning, I woke up, Got my coffee and my Bible sitting in my favorite chair to do my devotions. And I go grab the home phone and put it by the chair because I know Kathy Harder is going to call to talk. And I don't want the phone to ring four or five times and wake up the whole family. So I'm going to pick it up on the first or second ring. I really look forward to that. There's something about that kind of consistency. And God wants us to be those type of people. Don't undermine the mundane. If you're thinking about giving up this morning, look at the life of Samuel and say, I'm going to be consistent. 
I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to keep loving, keep serving, keep being faithful in my family, being faithful in the things that God has given me to do. Let's go to verse 3. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom's hand have I received any bride with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. Second quality, point number two, is integrity. Consistency with integrity. This is quite a moment in Samuel's life. He goes to the congregation of Israel and says, if I've cheated you, why don't you let me know? I'll make it right. If I've taken a bribe to blind my eye, let me know and and I'll make it right. If I've oppressed you, I'll make it right. He knew that he wasn't perfect, but he was walking in a life of integrity. We live in an integrity crisis, don't we? It's very hard to find a person of integrity. There was a man who started a company. He was the founder. It grew and grew. It was successful, worth millions and millions of dollars. It was time for him to retire. He didn't want to leave it to his children or leave it to some of his chief executives that had been with him for 20, 30 years. He decided to choose one of his young executives to take over this company. He had eight. He brought them in and he said, okay, in one year, I'm going to choose one of you to take over this company. You're going to be the president. You're going to be the CEO, the chief of operations. But here's the test. You're all going to receive this seed. And he handed out one seed to each of those executives and said, in a year, I want you to bring back this plant. And the person that has watered it faithfully, tended it faithfully, taken care of it faithfully, you're going to be the next CEO. One of these young men, his name was Tim, and he was just starting his family. They had a couple of kids, and him and his wife were so excited. What an opportunity for them. So they get a pot, and they plant the seed, and they start watering it. The days go by, they're watching. The weeks go by, they're watching. Nothing happens. There's no growth. There's no plant that's coming up. Mind you, Tim's going to work. There's all of these other executives. How's your plant doing? Well, it's starting to grow. It's getting a lot bigger. And he starts to get devastated, but he just continues to do his best, water it, nothing happens. Now it's the day to have time with the founder. He's going to pick the new president. He's not even going to take in his pot. It was a miserable failure. His wife goes, come on, just, just take it in and just own it. Be honest about it. So now they're in the boardroom. Everybody's got their plants. There's some big ones, colorful ones, different types, different varieties. The president's walking through. The founder's walking through. He says, Tim, come here. Come, come to the front of the boardroom. Tim's like, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to get mocked. I'm going to get made fun of. And the founder puts his arm around him, and he says, welcome the new president of the company. And then he shared with all of those eight executives that he had boiled the seeds. The seeds had been dead. None of them were going to result in plants. The other seven had went and got out their own plant that they had not grown from that seed. What was he doing? He was looking for a man of integrity. He was looking for a man of honesty. What are some ways that we're tested in integrity? We're tested in the area of having integrity at work. Do you cut corners? Do you take some of company's time? Do you put in an honest day's work? We're tested in the area of financial integrity. It's getting harder and harder for honest to pay taxes. As we see some of the decisions that our country's 
making. No one was ever excited about taxes. Now we're really not excited about taxes. And we're looking for a biblical out on taxes, right? Jesus said, pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar wasn't a nice guy. Paul wrote in Romans 13 that God has raised up governing authorities. And Nero was that authority at that time. We don't have a biblical allowance to opt out of taxes, but it's a test of integrity, isn't it? You sit down to do that tax form, and I, I could put this, I could put that, I could get out of these taxes, but it's a bold face lie, and we're tested in our integrity in that way. One of the ways I think that we're extremely tested in our integrity is our sexual integrity. If you're single, you're, you're being tested to have sexual purity until you're married, to, to save that for your marriage, to really believe that God desires for sexuality to be between a man and a woman inside of the commitment of marriage. Married couples, uh, you're going to be tested on your sexual integrity. There's going to be that temptation to have activity outside of your marriage. The t statistics show, the research shows, that amongst the people of God, there is not a higher level of sexual integrity than those that don't know Christ as their Savior. Would we think that we're some type of exception to that? If we're not walking in integrity, God loves us enough to expose it. Ask a man who was calling a prostitute to set up a rendezvous, and he accidentally included his wife on the call. It was a three-way call. How did that happen? You might say stupidity. I would say it was the Lord. It was the Lord busting him. He wasn't going to stay in that place. True story. A man's choosing to print out pornography at his workplace. Doesn't want to take that work at home. Nobody's watching. Hits print collects that pornography, is on his way, but the file was saved to the printer somehow. The IT department got a hold of it, traced it back to his computer. He lost his job. Now his marriage is in, in trouble. Why? God will always expose those dark secrets of our lives. Another true story. Man goes downtown to hook up with a prostitute, turns out to be a cop. He turns out to be a pastor. You can imagine everything that moves forward from that place. Church is no disguise for it. It's easy for us to come to church on a Sunday morning and think that God doesn't see, that God doesn't know. He sees, he knows. And he's wanting us to walk in a place of integrity, to follow through with our commitments. Where do we begin? First, in repentance and confession before God. If you know you're not walking in integrity, if there's some part of your life where you're saying, I sure hope that that doesn't come out, it will come out. So repent before God and confess before men. Make it right with God and make it right with who you need to get right with. If you need to go back on taxes and make it right, make it right. If you need to make it right with your employer, make it right. If you need to make it right with your spouse, make it right. It's a big deal. It's important. Why is it that it seems like the world will not listen to our witness? Could it be our lack of integrity? People wanted to listen to Samuel. When Samuel had something to say, they stopped and listened because his life had been touched by God, and through God's power and strength, we can't do it on our own. He was living in integrity, and at the end of his life, he could stand up and say, if I've wronged you, if I've cheated from you, if there's some lady here that I've had an inappropriate relationship with, go ahead. Bring it out. He wasn't hiding anything. It challenges us in that area of integrity. Verse 4, And they said, 
You've not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. They answered, he is witness. Verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Samuel's going to point out how God had raised up leaders. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And now when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then the Lord cried out to the Lord, or excuse me, then they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served Baals and Ashtaroths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. God provided deliverance as they cried out to the Lord. They were slaves in Egypt, cried out to the Lord. God raised up Moses and Aaron. Turned away from the Lord, back into slavery, cried out to the Lord. God raised up judges. The point of these verses is they turned to the Lord. Something's different now in Israel's history. This is the decision that they make in verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord God was your king. See the difference? They're not crying out to the Lord, looking to God for deliverance. They're saying, give us a leader. Give me a person to follow. Instead of looking to the Lord, we need to look to the Lord, not to a person. Verse 13, now therefore here's the king whom you've chosen, whom you've desired, and take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you continue following the Lord. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against you your fathers. This is wonderful. And you're saying, it doesn't seem wonderful. But even in the midst of their wickedness, their rebellion, and their unwise choice to have Saul as a king, what's the message from God? You can fear the Lord, you can serve him, you can follow him, he'll still be with you, and he'll work in and through your life. Some of you are sitting here going, man, it just feels too late. I'm not a person of consistency. I'm not a man or a woman of, of integrity. I've done sin upon sin, wickedness upon wickedness, poor choice after poor choice. It's just time for me to cash in the chips. This is my last weekend at church. Oh no. The spirit of God saying it's not too late. It wasn't too late for Israel. It's not too late for you. God loves you. He's died for you as unconditional love for you. Turn to him, fear him, serve him. And God is wonderful at restoration. Amen. So if that's for you, receive it. Don't walk away going, man, I I've gone too far. There's always the opportunity to return to the Lord and to walk with him. In verse 16, now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. 
Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking a king for yourself. Solomon says, I want you to understand this is a big deal that you've asked for a king. It's wickedness. So I'm gonna pray that there would be a big rainstorm, thunder and rain and, and lightning. Notice it's the day of the wheat harvest. Rain's problematic on the day of the harvest. Can destroy the crops, make it hard to bring in the crops. God wants the attention of the children of Israel. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all of the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Samuel can really preach up a storm, you know what I'm saying? Ho, 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 ho. That was a good one right there. I mean, he was preaching it up and the rain started and the thunder started and the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we've added to all of our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Samuel, would you pray for us? We've really blown it. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all of this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. That's Samuel's message. You can move forward in serving the Lord. And don't turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. Have you found it to be true in your life that once you stop following Christ, you start pursuing empty things, unprofitable things, things that can't deliver? We're gonna follow something, and only Christ can deliver. Only Christ can satisfy. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it is pleased the Lord to make you his people. Pay attention to that. That's the unconditional love of God. Even though Israel's blown it, wickedness upon wickedness, if they would serve the Lord, God's saying, you're my people. I've chosen you. God never gave up on Israel. He's not gonna give up on you. He's put his unconditional love upon you. We don't find this in human relationships. There's an end to human love, but there's not an end to God's love. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Number three to effective life, a life that God can use, is prayer. To pray for people, to intercede on their behalf. If you notice what Samuel said, he said, it would be sin for me to stop praying for you. Prayerlessness is sinfulness. We don't want to look at it that way, but there's a responsibility that's been placed upon us to pray for those that God has put into our lives, especially for those that God has called us to lead. One of the ways that we serve one another is to pray for one another. If you really love somebody, you're going to pray for them. Paul in his epistles said, I never cease to pray for you. Why? Because he loved them. He cared for them. So prayerlessness is sinfulness, but also prayerlessness is carelessness. I don't mean the kind of carelessness like I misplaced my glasses, but carelessness in this sense, I really don't care. Prayer is a proof of love. If we love our children, we're gonna pray for them. If we love our friends, we're gonna pray for them. If we love our church family, we're gonna pray for them. If we love Calvary Chapel Chihuahua, we're, we're gonna pray for them even though you haven't met them. It's an evidence of our love for others. It's one of the greatest things that we can do in the lives of others. There's change that can only happen as we spend time in prayer. Also, 
Prayerlessness is a sign of pride. You're like, really? How is me not praying a sign of pride? Because I'm telling God, I got this one. I don't need your help. I don't need your input. Don't need your guidance. I got this. And what did Jesus tell us? We can do nothing apart from him. So prayer is dependency upon the Lord. We're lifting things up to the Lord. I don't know about you, but guilt and condemnation has never caused me to pray more. (laughs) I think that we knew coming in this morning that we don't pray as much as we should, that I don't pray as much as we should. But you know what has moved me to, to greater prayer? Is understanding of relationship with the Father that the Father's calling us into relationship with him. It's expressed in this story. There's this little girl that loved for her dad to tell her the story of three pigs when she went to bed. Remember that story? Every night she wanted to hear three pigs. Well, he got kind of tired of telling that story. So he got really creative and he recorded it, gave it to her and said, now when you're going to bed, you can just hit play and you're good to go when you're going to bed at night. She looked at her dad and said, but I can't climb up in the recorder's lap. And that's the essence of prayer. It's not a father that's saying, come on, pray more. If you really love people, you'd pray. You've got a responsibility to pray. It's a father that's saying, I love you. I want to spend time with you. I want you to begin to see what can happen in a connection when you begin to depend upon me and pray and pray for those around you. Here's a practical insight on prayer. It's difficult to pray. When I begin to pray, I get really distracted. I start thinking about all the things I need to do or all the things I want to eat. And it's like squirrels in my brain. It just goes back and forth. Then I give up to the task list and the food list, right? So how do you grow your prayer life? This is profound. Just start praying. How do I grow my prayer life? Pray a little bit more. Take advantage of the time that you do have. A lot of times we think when we hear a message like this, I've got to devote a half hour of day of undistracted prayer. Yes, that would be great. But prayer should be like breathing, being in God's presence, praying without ceasing, in relationship with the Father. You're driving down the road. Allow that to be your sanctuary and begin to pray. You're in the shower. I hope you do that routinely. It's good for you, brushing your teeth. Take advantage of that time. Make it your sanctuary and pray. But it's a very important part of an effective life that God desires to use. And the fourth is this, teach, teach. Notice the order, consistency, integrity, prayer, then teaching. It's not very effective just to go lay it on everybody that we see. But be praying for the people that God is leading us to instruct. And how did Samuel teach? He taught in this way. Here's the good and right way. That's a wonderful way to teach. Come alongside people and say, oh man, isn't God good? Look at this good and right way that the Lord has given to us. We finish out the chapter, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Samuel didn't go, wow, you better fear the Lord. Did you see that lightning? You see that thunder? He's about ready to get you. He's about ready to fry your face off. You better get right or get left. Here it comes. Samuel says, fear the Lord, serve him, because consider all the great things that he's done for you. And I think when you stop and meditate upon who God is and what he's done for you and giving his son Jesus to you, that's what motivates fear and respect and awe of God and a desire to serve him. But if you will still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your kings. Three storylines, Saul's beginnings, Israel's decision, 
Samuel's farewell. A legacy is given to us in the life of Samuel. Consistency, integrity, prayer, and teaching. To teach, to, to share with others. Before we go, can I make you aware of the giant erasers at the doors of the sanctuary? Have you ever seen those? They work like this. The moment that we get up and we walk out those doors, they go whoop, whoop. We get in our car and you're with a friend, you're with family, you're like, what'd you get out of the message today? Uh, what, what did we talk about again? What, what did we study again? Oh yeah, Chance is leaving. I did get that part. Chance is, God, God's called him to, to Texas. But we can't really remember what we just studied in, in the word. And we get a week out, seven days later. It's the 11 o'clock service. What did we study last week? I got no clue. Sometimes that happens to me and I gave the message. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I'm being real with you. You know, I got to go back to my notes from last week to get us up to speed on, on where we've been. So I want you to press in for just a moment. Is what is God speaking to you this morning that you really need to sink your teeth in? Is it consistency? You came in this morning saying, I'm giving up. In some area of your life, I'm tired, I'm cashing in the chips, and God says, just keep going, be consistent. Is it integrity? Does there need to be repentance this morning? Does there need to be that, you know, I'm not walking in a life of integrity. I am freaked out at a moment like this that Samuel has, and the skeletons in the closet are gonna come out. Man, go with that this morning. Allow that fruit of repentance to take place in your life. Is it prayer? You say, you know, I'm really not praying for those that I love. I'm really not praying for my church family. I'm not praying for those that persecute me and despitefully use me. God, I want to come into deeper relationship with you. Is it teaching and sharing with others? This is the good way. Walk in it. Teaching doesn't just take place in a formal setting like this, but it's who you do life with. It's who you're in relationship with. And God wants you to begin to share the truth of God with him. Lay hold of it. Write it down. Pray about it. And say, God, help me to apply this to my heart and my life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Samuel. We do pray for application in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you that you're gracious and you're kind and you're forgiving. And we can turn to you, Father, in confession and repentance. And you forgive us and you empower us to live differently. Lord, we pray that you would grow our prayer life, grow our relationship with you, grow our dependency upon you, that there would be fruit that would come through our lives because we're walking in dependency with you in prayer. God, you bring the fruit that is necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.